traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-26 Amenes The Eastern Imperium was really the ultimate double-edged sword. Of all the men who'd held the position, only two died peacefully of old age. And really, if you don't count Tiberius, who was probably smothered, then it really just comes down to one. Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa. Precedent favored an early violent death by injury, poison, disease, or forced suicide, which makes it likely that Avidius Cassius at least gave the offer a moment's pause. The Syrian governor, senator, and hero of the Parthian War was forced to make the decision by the pressure of events. First and foremost, Lucius Verus had died in 169, very likely of the plague, leaving Marcus Aurelius as sole Roman emperor. Second, Marcus was fully occupied dealing with Germanic invasions across the Danube. And finally, a major revolt had erupted in a very tricky location. The status of Egypt as a private holding of the emperor worked pretty well while the province remained peaceful. The basic structure had been in place for well over a century. A Roman prefect and wealthy Roman elite ruling a population of native Egyptians, Greeks, and Jews. While the Greeks provided the Romans with a well-educated bureaucracy, native Egyptians were considered a conquered people with few rights and oppressive burdens of labor and taxation. When, unsurprisingly, this system bred revolts, some too big for a single legion to handle, things quickly grew complicated. Egypt was considered so important a province that no senator, governor, or general was allowed to enter it, for fear they might leverage its grain supply to starve out the capital and seize power which had been a theoretical threat until Vespasian actually tried it. When Trajan was confronted with revolts across North Africa, he was based in the East and a supremely confident delegator, so he dispatched generals to Egypt with minimal concerns. 
Tied up on the Danube with his co-emperor dead and a major revolt brewing in Middle Egypt, Marcus Aurelius found himself in a bit of a bind. He needed to empower someone to coordinate Rome's response, the job that would have gone to Lucius Verus. In the end, Marcus decided to offer Avidius Cassius the Eastern Imperium. If nothing else, it reflected an absolute trust in Cassius's competence and character. In 172, Avidius Cassius was 42 years old and had governed Syria for six years. He'd been married for some time to a Roman noblewoman named Volusia Vettia Maciana, and the couple had three children, two boys and a girl. Volusia's father, Lucius Volusius Macianus, was a former Egyptian prefect, just like Cassius's own father, and had also served as a legal advisor to Marcus Aurelius. Through his son-in-law, Cassius also had ties to the wealthy Lycian senator Claudius Titianus, which was nice, but as already mentioned, Cassius's own pedigree was downright mind-boggling. Cassius's great-grandfather on his mother's side, Gaius Julius Alexander, was a descendant of Tigranes the Great, Herod the Great, and King Archelaus of Cappadocia. In 58 AD, Nero granted Alexander rule over the minor Cilician kingdom of Cetus. Alexander's wife, Cassius's great-grandmother, was Julia Iotapa, daughter of King Antiochus IV of Comagene, sister of Antiochus Epiphanes and Callinicus, and descendant, on her mother's side, of King Artavasdes I of Media. The royal couple had three children, all of whom were born and raised in Cetus. The axe fell on two branches of the family tree in 72 AD. First, as covered in episode B-21, the kingdom of Comagene was annexed by Vespasian. The same year, Rome also annexed the kingdom of Cetus, and Julia Iotapa found herself joining her father, mother, and brothers, along with her husband Alexander, in gilded Roman exile. Despite any lingering bitterness among the elder royals, their children adapted well to life in the capital. The eldest, Gaius Julius Agrippa, entered the Senate under Domitian and served in the Praetorian Guard under Trajan. His younger brother, Berenicianus, entered the Senate the same year, 94 AD, and was elevated to proconsul of Asia in 132. It was Berenicianus who scored the ultimate coup of marrying into the Julio-Claudian dynasty. His wife, Cassia Lepida, was great-great-granddaughter of Julia the Younger, as well as niece of the famous Roman general Corbulo. The daughter of Berenicianus and Lepida was Avidius Cassius's mother, Julia Cassia Alexandra, who married his father, the Egyptian prefect Gaius Avidius Heliodorus. And yes, I've reposted the whole family tree up on the Ancient World website. 
When you combined his jaw-dropping lineage, his impressive war record, his general high regard, the fact that he'd been raised in Alexandria, and the fact that he was related, directly or indirectly, to every single person who'd ever held the Eastern Imperium, the elevation of Avidius Cassius may seem like a no-brainer. Even for as meticulous a decision-maker as Marcus Aurelius, who felt that disregard for minor details was the surest road to disaster. But even having Cassius on the job didn't mean the Egyptian crisis would be a slam dunk. The revolt was the brainchild of a priest named Isidorus. The Romans had arrested a number of the Bucali, or herdsmen, and Isidorus instructed some of their tribe to dress up like women and approach the Romans, offering to buy their people's freedom. When they got close enough, the Bucali dropped the ruse, drew their swords, and killed a centurion and his companion. Then, according to Cassius Dio, they took a common oath over his entrails and devoured them. So, yeah, weird and gross, but it doesn't really scream major crisis. Except Cassius Dio then jumps to Isidorus's followers defeating the Romans in regular battle and threatening to capture Alexandria. So we're talking about a large and highly organized revolt. Avidius Cassius wasted no time marching to Alexandria with reinforcements. But even then, according to Cassius Dio, the rebel army was too big to face head-on. Instead, Avidius Cassius used his local knowledge of the groups involved to sever their alliances and get them fighting amongst themselves. The strategy was successful, and before long the divided forces were methodically subdued. Once things had quieted down, Avidius Cassius returned to Antioch. His long tenure as Syrian proconsul was a novel feature of Marcus's reign. With so many Romans falling victim to the Antonine Plague and the northern frontier under constant threat, the emperor preferred to leave experienced men in power. Publius Martius Verus, Cassius's colleague from the Parthian War, had also governed Cappadocia since 166. While the east remained tranquil, the Danube ran red with the blood of Marcomanni, Iazyges, Quadi, Sarmatians, Langobardi, Victuali, Obii, and, of course, Roman soldiers. The northern wars had begun in late 166, when 6,000 Langobardi and Obii crossed into Roman territory. Though this initial foray was quickly routed, it was only a sign of things to come. Large-scale barbarian migrations were pushing Germanic tribes toward the Roman frontier, and the situation was only getting worse. In 168, Marcus Aurelius left the capital to take direct charge of imperial defense. When he did, it was both his first time outside Italy and his first experience in combat. Groomed to rule the empire for as long as he could remember, Marcus had also been raised to embrace religious piety, a simple diet, and to shun the ways of the rich. Through the influence of his tutors, particularly Quintus Junius Rusticus, Marcus had adopted a Stoic philosophy 
and the belief that good character required constant improvement and discipline. When Antoninus Pius died, Marcus was initially reluctant to succeed him, knowing the rule would distract him from his philosophical studies. But he'd eventually been swayed by strong feelings of duty and the willingness of Lucius Verus to share power. Arriving on the Danube in 169, Marcus found himself nearly incapacitated by the cold. He soon began relying on a medicine called theriac, prescribed by the famous physician Galen, to endure the hardships of camp life and his numerous afflictions. Six years later, at the age of 53, Marcus's health remained poor. Even worse, despite the fact that he'd fought countless battles, been acclaimed as Imperator seven times, and even accepted the lofty title of Germanicus, the conflict seemed no closer to winding down. His meditations, written during the period, reflects the bitter stalemate, with its advice to be like a rocky promontory, against which the restless surf continually pounds. In 174, the routine of camp life was broken by the arrival of Marcus's wife, Faustina, hailed as mother of the camp by the emperor's legions. Faustina was both daughter of the previous emperor, Antoninus Pius, and mother of Marcus's 13 children. Wait, did I read that right? Yep, it says right here, Marcus's 13 children. The really tragic part is that all but four were already dead, most in early childhood. The surviving heirs included their 26-year-old daughter Lucilla and 13-year-old son Commodus. As mentioned last episode, Lucilla had been married to Marcus's co-emperor Lucius Verus, and had taken the title of Augusta or Empress. When Lucius died in 169, Marcus made a pretty radical clutch call. He cut short the period of mourning and gave his daughter in marriage to an elderly Roman statesman named Claudius Pompeianus. Now, the only two people who liked this idea were Marcus and Pompeianus. Everybody else, especially his wife and daughter, absolutely hated it, and for a variety of reasons. To start with, Pompeianus was the first senator from his family, making him insufficiently noble to marry an empress. He was also a native Antiochene, considered dubious ancestry by the Antonines, and, last but not least, was the main objection. Pompeianus was roughly twice Lucilla's age, which wasn't really odd for most Roman marriages, but apparently in this case was a huge deal. The main factors in Pompeianus's favor were his long service to both Rome and Marcus as governor and general. In fact, Marcus had recently elevated Pompeianus to be his chief military advisor. Marcus's trust was apparently well-founded, and Pompeianus declined several offers to be named as Caesar, in other words, as Marcus's chosen successor. Unfortunately, his refusals weren't enough to convince Marcus's wife, the Empress Faustina. With Marcus perpetually in poor health and Commodus too young to rule, Faustina knew that her new son-in-law was Marcus's successor in all but name. 
The only way to prevent this was to cultivate a rival, someone who, if worse came to worse, could challenge Pompeianus for the throne. As it turned out, there was only one viable candidate. Back toward the end of the Parthian War, around 166, Faustina had come east to visit Lucilla and Lucius Verus. While in Antioch, she likely met the most famous Roman general of his day, a man preparing to gild his reputation even further by leading a campaign into media. Oddly enough, just like the hated Pompeianus, Avidius Cassius was both the first senator from his family and a native Syrian, in his case from the northern town of Cyrus. Also like Pompeianus, Cassius was a governor, general, and former consul with a long history of dedication to Rome. But it was the contrast with Pompeianus that most interested Faustina. Most importantly, Cassius's royal lineage and his father's previous role as Egyptian prefect, both of which made him a far more palatable successor to Marcus. Faustina may also have favored his youth, as both she and Cassius were exactly the same age. And, as reported by Cassius Dio, Avidius Cassius had shown himself an excellent man and the sort of person one would desire to have as emperor. Apparently, the scenario envisioned by Faustina went something like this. Marcus would die, Avidius Cassius would defeat Pompeianus, Faustina would marry Cassius, and things would continue merrily along until Commodus came to power. And I don't know about you, but I smell a lot of if coming off that plan. Either way, it appears that Faustina's visceral dislike of Pompeianus and desire to prevent his elevation at any cost outweighed any concerns of something going awry. Faustina took the critical step sometime in 174 and began a correspondence with Avidius Cassius. The gist was straightforward. My husband is on his deathbed, Commodus is too young, and Pompeianus is unacceptable. If Marcus dies, you're the only one who can save the empire. The factors that recommended Cassius to Faustina, his royal lineage and youth, were likely the same ones that made him open to the concept. That plus the fact that the plan's instigator was the sitting Roman empress. Even for someone as loyal as Cassius, it's easy to picture the wheels start to turn. He had control of Syria, close ties to Egypt, an old friend governing Cappadocia, and noble relatives in Lycia. That's roughly comparable to Vespasian's assets when he launched his bid for the throne. While the Euphrates was quiet allowing Cassius to concentrate forces westward, the Danube remained precarious, hampering the ability of Pompeianus to fight a civil war. There were also powerful Romans tired of pouring blood and treasure into fruitless northern wars, who might support a change of rule if it meant a change in policy. And, of course, with Faustina's backing, Cassius could rely on the critical help of the Antonines and their allies. But, let's be honest, practicality aside, there were also personal motives. 
Cassius was the heir of eastern kings, the direct descendant of Caesar Augustus, and holder of the eastern imperium. When it came right down to it, who was more qualified to rule the Roman Empire than Avidius Cassius? Once he'd accepted the idea, it must have become apparent that success depended on speed, and speed meant advanced planning. Feelers must have been put out, either subtle or direct, to secure allies he could count on. The most critical was the current Egyptian prefect, Gaius Calvisius Statianus. Fortunately, Statianus was also the man Cassius had just rescued from a major revolt. In the spring of 175, the moment of truth finally arrived. Word came east that Marcus Aurelius had died of illness in his camp. Just like with Vespasian, Cassius's preparations bore immediate fruit, when both Syria and Egypt quickly hailed him as Roman emperor. Also like Vespasian, Cassius soon made for Alexandria to secure his hold on Rome's grain supply. For someone who'd grown up in the city, it must have felt less like a rebellion and more like a triumphant homecoming. Except, and I don't know how to break this to you, Cassius, but Marcus Aurelius isn't dead. Not even a little bit. That report that came east was just an unfounded rumor. And yes, that sound you just heard was your jaw hitting the floor and shattering. There's no evidence whatsoever that Avidius Cassius ever had any intention of challenging Marcus Aurelius for the Roman Empire. He was loyal, always had been loyal, and thought he was being loyal to the Empress, her family, and Marcus's own memory when he launched his rebellion, a rebellion directed solely against the unworthy successor Pompeianus. Learning that Marcus was still alive was likely the very worst moment of Avidius Cassius's life. The tragedy was it was already too late. He'd accepted acclamation as emperor, and no matter how hard you try, you just can't unring that bell. At this point, there were only two options available. Surrender in disgrace and throw himself on Marcus's mercy, or double down and stick to the plan. And I'm guessing that surrender and disgrace were fundamentally incompatible with Cassius's nature, which meant that plan B was really the only option. It's not clear what his new propaganda line was, other than, well, if Marcus isn't dead yet, he probably will be soon, and I'll still make a better emperor than Pompeianus. But surprisingly, the revelation that Marcus was still alive didn't really dampen Cassius' support in the East. By May 175, in addition to Egypt and Syria, he'd also been proclaimed emperor in Arabia Petraea and Elia Palestinia, giving him an effective army of seven legions. His adopted home city of Antioch was completely behind him, which likely reflected a mix of Cassius's popularity and the lack of eastern attachment to an emperor they'd never really known. Unfortunately, the good news came to a screeching halt at the Anatolian frontier. 
Cassius had hoped to enlist the backing of his wartime colleague, the Cappadocian governor Publius Martius Verus. But Verus remained loyal to Marcus Aurelius and immediately sent word of Cassius's rebellion. Perhaps most cutting of all, Cassius received a letter from the distinguished Greek senator Herodes Atticus. The letter contained a single Greek word, Emanes, you are mad. Meanwhile out west, Marcus Aurelius was preparing for a major push across the Danube. The campaign of 175 was intended to, in the words of Cassius Dio, utterly exterminate both the Marcomanni and Quadi, and convert their lands into a new Roman province. The effort had barely begun when Varus's dispatch arrived in camp. Utterly shocked that a man he respected and trusted had turned against him, Marcus took two immediate steps. First, he sent troops south to protect Rome from any aggression. Second, he ordered Commodus to come north and join him. When his 14-year-old son arrived in camp, Marcus promoted him to both official adulthood and the role of Caesar, removing another leg from Cassius's increasingly shaky platform. Meanwhile, the Senate declared Avidius Cassius an enemy of Rome. At first, Marcus tried to hide the revolt from his legions, but once rumors began to spread, he was forced to confront them. His speech was characteristically civil. There were no wild accusations or denunciations of Avidius Cassius, just the admission that a civil war had begun and it was his duty to end it. Marcus even went above and beyond to express his wish that Cassius neither be killed nor commit suicide, so he could be shown mercy. Unfortunately, Marcus's preferences were slow in reaching the east. In July 175, in Alexandria, Avidius Cassius was walking the streets of his wartime capital when he encountered a centurion on horseback. With minimal preamble, the centurion drew his gladius and stabbed Cassius in the neck. Then his horse spooked and bolted. As the wounded Cassius staggered for safety, a decurion approached him with sword drawn and cut him down. The two men then severed his head as a prize for Marcus Aurelius. Elsewhere in the city, one of Cassius's sons, Macianus, was also killed. The rebellion of Avidius Cassius, the first great Syrian pretender to the Roman throne, had lasted barely three months. And, once again, the Eastern Imperium had proven to be a virtual death sentence. Still encamped on the Danube, Marcus refused the gift of Cassius's head and ordered it to be buried. He still intended to go east and try to reconcile the rebellious provinces to his rule. True to his character, Marcus would treat everyone there with equanimity and punish no one, high or low, for taking part in the rebellion. The only exception was Avidius Cassius's second son, Heliodorus, who was banished. His daughter Alexandra was left unmolested and went to live with her husband's family in Lycia. The fate of Avidius Cassius's wife, Maciana, is unknown. 
Marcus had only traveled east as far as Cappadocia when his own wife, Faustina, died. It's not known what she'd admitted to Marcus of her role in the rebellion. It is known that Publius Martius Verus, sent ahead to secure Syria, had prioritized the burning of Cassius's correspondence, so she'd likely had little need to admit anything. It's also clear that, even though she was only 45, Faustina had already given birth to 13 children and was pregnant with her 14th when she passed. Rumors of suicide or murder are pretty unconvincing. Traveling through Anatolia in midwinter while pregnant was probably just too much for her constitution. The Empress Faustina, who'd brought Rome to the brink of a bloody civil war, was mourned by her husband and deified by the Senate, and the village where she died was renamed Faustinopolis. Over the next few months, Marcus toured Egypt and Syria and met with Parthian ambassadors sent by King Volagasius IV, all with his son and heir Commodus at his side. Returning to Rome in late 176, Marcus celebrated his triumph over the Germans and Sarmatians in unusual fashion, running beside his chariot while 15-year-old Commodus rode inside holding the reins. I wouldn't look too deep for any meaning. Sometimes old guys just do funny stuff for the heck of it. In August of 178, Marcus once again left Rome for the Danube, this time accompanied by Commodus. Cassius Dio records that, before leaving, the emperor threw the bloody spear kept in the Temple of Bologna into ground symbolically regarded as enemy territory. In doing so, Marcus was reenacting the ancient Roman tradition of the Fichales, the priests who declared war after deciding Rome's cause was just. Just or otherwise, it was an expedition from which Marcus Aurelius would never return.